giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Nadia Oduayo. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So maybe you could start uh, by talking about some of the stuff that you're excited about or, or doing lately. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I've recently done a lot of speaking at conferences. Mm-hmm. So I spoke at RailsConf this year, GoRuco and Brighton Ruby. And I guess the cool thing is that in all of those Ruby slash Rails conferences, I didn't talk about Ruby or Rails. <laughs> I was talking about um, game theory, which is mm-hmm. something that I picked up from my economics degree and I really enjoy. Um, and so it's been cool bringing that different side to the Ruby and Rails communities and giving them some, but linking that back into software in some way. And so just giving them something different to think about. Yeah. And this, I think, is actually one of the the little secrets that people don't know about conferences, which is they're often willing to accept talks that are not strictly on theme. So this was a thing, actually, about how I came to suddenly get into the, the conference circuit, because mm-hmm. I gave a talk at Pivotal, where I was working earlier in in the year, or late 2014. And my boss had come to see it. And he it was just a lightning talk. And he uh, he really enjoyed it. And he said, you should submit this to other conferences like RailsConf and RubyConf. And I thought, why would I do that? I would, they wouldn't accept me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened that I got talking to Sarah May. And at the time, I didn't, I didn't know it was Sarah May in the sense of I'd read her blog posts, but I didn't know what she looked like. And so it was only afterwards that I pieced it together. But uh-huh. I was talking to this woman and she, she was hearing my talk and she was saying, oh, you should submit this game theory talk to RailsConf. And I was thinking... Why would I do that? You know, <laughs> this does not fit. What is, what, what is this woman talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it anyway. And I, I later learned, you know, that Sarah was obviously one of the directors of Ruby Central. But I would have never submitted had I not had someone in the Ruby community say, oh, yeah, the, the Ruby community would love to hear about this. And this is mm. uh, what you should talk about. And it was a really, really positive experience. But I was really nervous in the run up to it because one, I thought, so there were six, there was, it's like a six track conference. And mm, wow. the first thing I thought was, well, no one's going to choose to come to my talk. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got all these great Ruby talks lined up. And why would they come and hear about game theory? <laughs> um, and the second thing I worried about was people would come to my talk. But 10 minutes in, when they realized this was nothing to do with Ruby, they would leave and go to mm. a Ruby talk. Luckily, neither happened. Um, but it's something that, I so I'm now on the Ruby Conf committee. Oh, cool! And so I've pushed for. I'm running a track called Beyond Ruby, which mm-hmm. is not about other languages like JavaScript or Go. It's about um, what is the cool stuff that you know about that many other people don't know about, and that you want to share with us that could be cool. And maybe we can link it to software. Maybe we can't, but that doesn't matter um, mm-hmm. because we can all learn something from it. So yeah, I'm quite excited about that stuff. It's. I think your your worry that people would be upset that your talk wasn't about Ruby is like very natural. But also, I would be so deeply skeptical of programmers that had no interest outside of this narrow slice of programming. Yeah, no, I. That was the thing that kept me going because I was like, why am I excited about this, and mm. why should other people be be excited about this? And I had to do this thing where, so I was like slap bang in the middle of the conference, in the middle of the the second of three days, and mm-hmm. by that time I'd had. Many people come up to me and sort of, you know, I had my speaker badge and 
you know, they'd say, what's you talking about? And I was like, well, it's about game theory and distributed systems. And they'd say, cool, what's that got to do with Rails? And I'd mm-hmm. say, nothing. Well, not directly. And, but it was quite fun trying to convince them why they should come uh, and why they should come and learn about something different because it's something I do believe in. And I, and I think that talking to other people in the Ruby community, there are some people who sometimes feel like some conferences are sort of misadvertised or that mm. there aren't as many technical talks and this is and 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 so therefore you know it's not worth their time and I saw this even in I ran the lunchtime talks at Pivotal Labs in London for a long time and we started getting more talks in around like communication or the product side and you have some people say oh I wasn't expecting this it's not it's not quite technical um Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh it's kind of it's sad when you when you when you 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 see people with that view of well I'm coming to learn about this really hard technical ruby thing and it's good to have the mix but it's also important not to lose sight of the other stuff that ultimately make us better developers Mm -hmm. absolutely I understand people that feel that way uh about their conferences I think part of it is that so I've always sort of been a naturally curious person. So I, I have a wide ranging interests, yeah. but also I've been to a lot of conferences now and I've been doing Ruby a long time. So now I go, when I go to conferences, I want to be entertained and you know stimulated in a, about new things. And so the idea of going to RailsConf and just watching talks about Rails actually sounds much less interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess it also depends on why you're there. I think probably right, there sure. are quite a few people who, I don't know, maybe their, their company sent them there. Um, or they're a new developer and they think I've got to like get as much as I can and then go away. And I guess if they come in with a frame of mind that I'm here to learn about X or Y, like Ruby or how to do testing or certain functionality in Rails, um, and they think they're not getting that, then they might see that as a problem. But honestly, looking through the schedules of lots of these conferences, I think there's room for more of this beyond Ruby stuff, but mm-hmm. it's not lacking. Like the choice is there. Um, I was more nervous doing my talk actually at Goruko a couple of months later because that was a single track conference, a single mm. track Ruby conference. Yep. Um, and I was speaking first of the day and that was more nerve wracking because I thought, well, at least in RailsConf, people had a choice if they wanted <laughs> to come and hear this or not. And now no one has a choice. Mm-hmm. And it's hard often because you buy, I mean, these conferences aren't cheap and you buy these tickets and sometimes like the, the schedule hasn't been finalized and you don't know what talks are going to be planned. And so I had this feeling that, again, it would be like people paid for this single track. It's a one day thing, um, RubyConf. And they'll say, why am I learning about game theory? Sure, sure, sure. So could you summarize some of your, your game theory talk or just give us yeah. a, little, a hint of it? Okay, okay, right. Let me th- let me I know it's a challenge. Me. Yeah, so essentially I start with, it, it's linked to distributed systems. So I've been working on, I've been spending the last like year and a half working on Cloud Foundry at Pivotal which mm-hmm. is their platform as a service system. So enables, you know, enterprise companies to host their apps on their own, on their own version, their own instance of Heroku, effectively. Gotcha. That's like the simplest way to explain what it is. And I got into reading a lot about distributed systems and, you know, how when you've got many computers that need to work together, how problems get really difficult. Yeah. And trying to read a lot of the literature, it would get mathematical and quite difficult very quickly mm-hmm. um, and so I thought there must be an easier way to model this or to think about this and so I thought back to when I studied game theory at university and what I really liked about it was so I was studying economics and so it was 
built into that, that reading the literature around game theory, um, it was applied to so many different things from, you know, just social interactions with your friends, mm -hmm. when you go to restaurants, when you're meeting up, to things like evolutionary biology. And so the, the span was wide. And I started saying, oh, there must be a way, and this must have been done, that people have looked to computer, computer science. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the talk was, let's take a simple load balancing problem. So you've got two, three computers, and they need to complete a certain number of jobs. Mm -hmm. And let's assume that they're rational agents and that they're bargaining with one another. Mm. And you've got a task distributor that's shooting these jobs at them, and they're going to discuss amongst themselves how many jobs each computer should take. Mm -hmm. um, and each computer has a different um, processing power. So one can handle, you know, twice as many jobs as another, for example. Um, and so I start with the premise that the information is out in the open. So you know computer A can handle five jobs, say, and you know computer B can handle two jobs every second. Mm -hmm. So given this is out in the open and they're going to have a little chat about this, how do you come up with an efficient solution? And so I, I say you can look at something, you know, the Nash bargaining solution, which is how, you know, you've got each computer has a sort of utility function or a happiness function. Mm. Um, and so it's they're happiest when, you know, they're not doing anything, but they know they've got to do some because they've got to work together to complete, say, four jobs for the day. So it's like, mm -hmm. we have to do this work. So given that we have to do this work and I'm much faster than you, how, what's the best way to do this so that we're, we, we, we've got the maximum happiness that we can get in the system? So it's similar to like if you've got a group of people and they need to like do some work and someone's, some people are stronger than others, how should they distribute that work? Mm -hmm. so that's the sort of first part of the talk. And I work through like a, an actual example with numbers and things like that. Um, and then the second part is now what if this information of how powerful the computers are were secret mm. um, and so you don't know but you've got to trust the computers to do what they say they're going to do and the reason why I bring up that scenario is because I'm trying to mimic this idea of sort of networks where you've got computers competing for resources mm. um, but you still want to offer a good service to your users um, and so in that case you can use this concept of second price auctions um, and so have you heard of the second price auction no so second price auctions are where you everyone simultaneously submits their bid mm -hmm. to, for, to, for the item in question. And the bids are then looked at by the auctioneer. And the person who made the highest bid wins, um, but they'll only pay the price of the second highest bid. And it's a bit hard to like explain just through talking. But mm -hmm. essentially, when you set up the, the payoff like that, you can show that it's always in your best interest to just bid how much you actually want to pay for the item in question. Your, your, your actual maximum price? Yes. So you can show that, you know, if you overbid, for example, the second highest bid is going to be, it could be higher than your maximum bid. And so you'd have to pay that if you win. So it's just never in your interest to bid higher than what you actually want to bid. And so therefore, it's efficient because the good or the thing in question ends up going to the person who, value, who values it the most. Hmm. Um, and is that not true of a normal auction? No, because with a normal auction, it's out in the open. So people can say, oh, I'm bidding this. And then I can say, I'm going to raise this. You know how much you're paying. And so you can end up still overpaying. And so it leads to inefficiencies because people will just say, I really want this item and so i'm just going to pay five pounds more or 10 pounds more but by having it secretive 
and then you're not actually paying what you put, it's a way of people actually revealing their true preferences. Hmm. So the pressure of an out in the open auction of when everyone's sort of saying, well, I'm going to pay five, then I'll pay 10, is people do often end up paying more than they want to pay. Hmm. Is this because like they can get in bidding wars with each other too? Yeah, they can get in bidding wars. But I think to understand why you'd set up an auction in a second price auction is to not think about the individual. It's more thinking about efficiency, which is because in, in an individual sense, although we model in economics, you model yourself as being a rational agent. Often we don't act in that way. Sure, so totally. in both cases, in a second price auction, you, you can overbid or in a first price auction, you overbid. But the point is saying, as someone administering an auction who wants it to go to the person who values it the most, the more you overbid, the more uncertainty you have over what you're actually going to pay. Um, mm. you, it causes you to think more about what do I actually want to pay? There's more of a, a risk and uncertainty there. So there are many different variations of, like, of auctions built off of this second price auction, but really it's used as a sort of argument for so in sort of the social uh, economic space where you are, for example, you're living in a flat with a few people uh-huh. and you want to decide whether you're going to get a TV and get a TV license. And so the idea is you can all say, uh, you make your vote with how much you're willing to pay for it. Uh-huh. And if the total that's in the pot is enough to pay for the good, then you get it. But the people who, who didn't want it, you have to pay them some of the money as well. Essentially, it's a way of cancelling out externalities. Huh, that sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah. I have to try to steal, try this in some real life scenarios and see how it feels. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of hard to think of it without an example. Yeah, it, it's quite hard. And you, you'd have to use numbers. And that's why in my talk, all my examples use numbers and walk, walk step through, because it's really hard to talk about in a, in a general concept. And I think in an early version of my talk, I was just talking about it in general concepts um, and using formulae, and that didn't go down well. Gotcha. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. And that's because a single grid account can host anything from your portfolio site to 100 different client projects. And the grid is ready for anything. Hundreds of servers work together to keep your sites online, even if you suddenly hit the front page of Reddit. Special discount for Giant Robots listeners. If you're interested, you can use promo code ROBOT25, all caps, for 25% off web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter your promo code upon sign up. So you're, you're at Pivotal then? Oh, I was at Pivotal. Oh, you were at Pivotal. As of a few weeks ago. Okay. Uh, I recently left with, a, with another colleague to sort of, we want to experiment on some of our own product, product ideas. Oh, cool. um, so you have started a, some sort of new venture where you're, you and one other person are building things and trying to sell them or will? Yeah, we've got a few product ideas. We're currently working, partnering with a couple of other people and to launch a sort of health and uh, fitness platform, which is essentially, if you think of the fitness DVD space, hmm. it's going to be tailorized DVD workouts based on your weight loss goal sort of thing so it's that fitness dvd market um and then around that uh, my colleague theo and i have some ideas that we're sort of experimenting with or plan to experiment with around sort of tools to help non-technical users um so we see this theme that there are a lot of people out there who've got ideas and you know they're starting businesses and they they fall down because they don't have any technical skills yeah. and so you know they they don't know 
the next step. And we've we've seen some instances, unfortunately, of people with technical skills sort of not doing the best job they could do or taking advantage of a lack of knowledge of technical capabilities. And we'd love to sort of think of ways that we can help um, non-technical product owners retain ownership of their of their products and have more transparency into the process and find a way that developers and and these people can speak the same language um, Mm -hmm. or at least a similar language and so that's some of the concepts we're sort of playing around with so how can we model these like infrastructures of systems and products and that sort of stuff Mm. well kudos to you for leaving the uh, corporate nest and striking (laughs) out on your own yeah thank you we'll see we see we'll see how well it goes (laughs) so is is pivotal still doing full-time pairing yes yes and actually that's something that Theo and I are still doing, even as we do a sort of our own our own venture, we're still full-time pairing because, you know, we think it's a very important practice. And it really, as someone, first of all, as someone who came in as relatively junior, like it's amazing how, you know, from day one, I could go and work on some really complex stuff that I just wouldn't be able to, had no clue by myself. Yeah. Um, and it's enabled, uh, it enables like, you know, junior developers to really ramp up their skills. But it's great because like it's on, on the surface, it seems very counterintuitive to a lot of people. So even the people that we're working with now, they were very confused about why Theo and I were going to be working from the same machine and like having, you know, two, two displays and two ones were looking at the same thing. That seems very counterintuitive for them. But, you know, they've seen it in action and, and this often happens, you know, they see it in practice and then they see, oh, it, it is faster in the long run. And, you know, they see how it works with, you know, having someone that you have to sort of explain what you're doing and why you're doing it and problem solving, you know, two heads being better than one, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've got someone else that you're sort of accountable to. And also mm-hmm. just the other side of it in sense of, um, and this is something that we found in Pivotal, that, you know, anyone in, on the team can jump into any part of the code base because you're constantly rot- rotating your pairs Um there's no sort of knowledge silos or that sort of sort of thing, and you can have confidence and flexibility with any part of the code base, and that as a team helps you to move faster as well. Mm-hmm. It's a really intriguing idea. I did, we don't uh, we don't do anything close to full time pairing. No. We sort of do it at ad hoc as as needed or desired. And do you find like so? How I don't know if you could put like a number on it, but how much of your time do you find that you do end up pairing? Because one of the things is there's often the argument that it's a trade off that there are times when you feel like you do want flexibility or for example on some of the stuff I was working with at Pivotal in Cloud Foundry you get into really like low level problems where you kind of just want your own space to sort of just Mm. tunnel in and and focus in on a problem and it's hard also you know you can have a hunch and it's not always easy for you to uh, explain or express exactly what that hunch is but you just kind of need to play around and Mm -hmm. sometimes you can you can feel like that pairing uh, stops you from doing that but it's that trade-off of in the long run it, it it makes sense so and and also we always talk about the slippery slope in well you say you can choose by discretion but then do you end up doing it at all so it'll be interesting to hear from you in terms of how often people do choose to pair thought, but and what sort of occasions you know mean that people go and ask for someone to join them yeah i i don't know if i could accurately give an estimate for the company um, or even the office, it's because it's, it's, I just don't keep tabs yeah, on it. For yeah, me, yeah. it's probably five percent of the time, uh, um, and and maybe even less. Like we, I, I, their default is definitely working separately. 
Um, we have a very strong code review culture. So yeah. pretty much everything that gets into master has been reviewed by someone, if, if not multiple someones. Uh, but uh, pairing is, is definitely the exception, not the rule. Okay. But I'm, I'm also a very big fan of pairing. Like I, I actually really do believe that it's a really excellent practice and produces great code, almost certainly better code than you would get if you just did it by yourself. And the, you know, the knowledge transfer thing is, is definitely huge. I don't have an argument against it. It's just that it hasn't, it hasn't become something I do regularly. I think part of it's maybe that it's pretty exhausting. Yeah. So this is interesting. It is incredibly tiring. And I, you have to sort of change your lifestyle and make sure you're getting enough sleep to, to survive eight hours a day of pairing. Yeah, totally. And you give up sort of your own space and privacy and workflow choices, like tool choices, potentially. Yeah, well, that's always an interesting thing that we, you know, you always have, we always have conversations about. Um, mm-hmm. pivot, we always had conversations about a pivotal. Um, so in terms of like workflow, so in terms of like your privacy and your space, you know, we can't, you know, certain emails or things, or life admin stuff you might try and do in the middle of the day, you, you can't do. And you know, again, some people say, well, that's good because you're focusing on doing your work the whole time. But at the end of the day, we all have lives and we all have things that we sometimes need to tend to. And yeah. so we have things like internet stations or Chromebooks where you can sort of step away if you need to, to sort of sort out your own thing. Um, and then in terms of the tools, in the te- last team I was in, people often use their code editor of choice. So, you know, I'd use Vim uh, and my pair would be using Sublime and Sometimes you, you know, you just, you just switch between. It's not, it's not the easiest flow. And often we're quite compromising at times and just, just doing something in Sublime or, you know, someone trying to do something in Vim, although it's sometimes hard if you haven't used Vim. But it's not the smoothest, but there are ways to sort of help it. So, for example, Theo and I have been doing some remote pairing uh, recently. We've, we've tried our hand at Flubits, which isn't bad. Have you heard of Flubits? Sounds familiar. Yeah, so essentially it's like remote pairing using like an SSH sort of connection. And so mm. I'm, and it's in real time. So he's using Atom and I'm using Vim. And we're sort of editing the code together. And, or I can sort of follow where he's, as he's looking through files, I can sort of follow him and he, or he can, or I can summon him to a certain page and say, look at this. So it's, it's a pretty neat tool that we've been using. And there are things like that that try and help you, you know, use your own tools and stay in your own comfort zone while still working with someone else. Mm-hmm. I think my position on it is I'm I'm a little skeptical of any of a number of number of like 100% and 0%. Yeah. Like if if you think that like pairing should never be done, I, I think there's some, like you should question that and if you think that pairing should always be done, I think that's also worth questioning. Mm-hmm. So for for me I'm sort of like a happy medium person. Like yeah. I, th- I think there's there's almost certainly a number in there that makes sense and it's yeah. for me personally I'm skeptical of the extremes. Yeah. Uh, of of all things in programming basically. Yeah, and it's something that I've like spoken about a lot with my colleagues, particularly as I say. So, for example, as someone who was really came in very junior, and I was always therefore by default working with someone more experienced with me, there were issues that came with that. And actually, I I read one blog post by Saron that she expressed exactly how I was feeling, which is that time where you often sometimes you find yourself instead of actually just trying to think what is the solution to the problem, you think, what does my pair think the solution to the problem is? And what should I? And sometimes, you know, that there's this pressure of, oh, they've, they already know the answer and they mm-hmm. know it. And now it's like my turn to drive and they're just, you know, they're waiting, but in their mind, they know where we're going. And I try and second guess that. And that's not good. Mm-hmm. And some projects I've been on, you know, there have been times when we've been an odd number of people. And so, you know, I've had a chance to solo and it's great because it like consolidates a lot of stuff that I've been picking up through pairing and 
I've had a chance and it, you know, it gives me more confidence because it's like, yes, I can do this stuff by myself. Um, mm-hmm. So that, there's that side. I think the second thing is the nature of the work as well. So as I said, you know, I was doing a lot of systems, you know, low level cloud platform stuff. And there were times when it would be, it's really hard to pair on some of the debugging that you had to do. And sometimes you kind of need space to, go away and play around and particularly Mm. for example I had no experience with this stuff and I wouldn't even have a a handle on what the exploring space was and I just needed time to play around without necessarily having to explain to someone why I'm doing that Mm -hmm. and also just to have there are certain things that I would probably do if I was alone and just do like I think oh this is silly but let me just see what this does but if the fact that, oh, I have to explain this to the person sitting next to me might mean that it never even gets to the stage where I, I type those keys. Um, and so, yeah, but I guess when you're running a company, and I guess it's like you say, for example, you're someone who generally sees the advantages in pairing and would love to do it more, but because your company, you know, it's not something that's enforced or it's not just the way it's done, it means that you don't do it as much as you would like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, if you were to do it more, it's more effort on your part because you've got to convince other people to do it. And, you know, as you say, it's tiring. And so you're putting that on someone else who mm-hmm. might not fully get why, why should I do this? And so therefore you don't, you even, you know, you don't do it as much as you should do. And I guess that's the, that's the, the trade-off that Pivotal makes, which is we see the long-term benefits in running a company. It mm-hmm. is easier if you, if you believe in something to go for the hundred percent mm-hmm. than to try and have some discretion. I think about this a lot in terms of how can you find the right balance of pairing time? Like it's definitely high and, you know, towards the hundred percent, I would say, but there are times when you do need, I think some space to explore and play it because play yep. is like just the best way to learn. And <laughs> oh, sure. I think, yeah. And there were times when I think, you know, maybe I didn't get the chance to play and explore as much because, because I had someone next to me who I was like accountable to. Right. So how was your Makers Academy experience? Oh, that was that was a very interesting experience. So I went into Makers Academy not thinking, like, thinking, I don't want to be a developer. I am just going to do this course. You know, I'm quite entrepreneurial. I've got a few ideas. And it'll be great to understand the technical sp- space a bit more. And so I went in and, you know, I started doing the pre-course. And it was just very exciting thinking about problem solving in a different way. So we we had sort of a weekly theme and then we had a challenge at the end of the week and mm-hmm. so it was just fun like so during the week you'd pair on a sort of a week-long project and then you'd have a challenge that you'd start on the Friday and you know might go into the weekend and it was just a really fun process of you know immersing yourself in something and then having again having that space to sort of go alone and do these challenges and it'd be cool things like modeling a Boris bike system or modeling a, a takeaway and a takeaway platform and mm-hmm. so what was cool and exciting was programming, but applying it to sort of real world applications. And so, no, it was, it was really exciting. There were, there were times I remember around week four or five of the 12 week course where mm-hmm. I start, I started so well cause I'd done all the prep material and I hit the ground running. And then there was a time like around week four or five where stuff just wasn't going right and I wasn't getting it. So we had, I remember we had to program a Sudoku server and I was me and, the person who I was working with had spent such a long time and it got to that point you know that point where you've been going so far down one way you just realize this isn't gonna work like this mm-hmm. doesn't work and it, we're too far in we're gonna have to start again and we just you know we just didn't know what to do we were stuck and 
it was just this feat and then and then there was this period where I was like I can't this is really hard and I don't know what I'm doing and I can't do this and then I realized that was silly thinking and I just had to get on with it and so I did and and it was yeah it was really good fun um and we have the sort of we had the final uh, the last few weeks you pair up with in a team of around four to six people and you build a final project and this is kind of like you know you're working in a in a small team and it's kind of like you're doing a sort of startup project in a sense um mm-hmm. and you can set up your 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 own workflows and what tools you're going to use as a team and uh, so it was cool so my team built this app called Pinch which was like it was actually the, a, a, a business idea of one of the guys in my team and um it was this idea where businesses could sign up and post deals to uh, any one of their their fans their, and their fans would see these flash discounts mm-hmm. and you would see as a user you would go on and see the feed of all your the companies that you're following and all the deals they posted but you couldn't see any information and as soon as you click to see the information you'd have anything from 30 seconds to 2 minutes to decide mm-hmm. whether you wanted to purchase this deal or not before it was gone forever and so mm-hmm. it was a really fun tool to build so we got to you know do been learning ruby rails so we did it in that and then we we did in some some angular on the front end and and that sort of stuff and it was a, it was a really really great experience and so no i really really enjoyed it and of course you know it it helped me get to where i am now so it's a it's great that these coding schools are out there yeah totally so is there anything else we should cover before i let you go and get back to your uh, dominating the world with your new venture No, I think I think that's it really. I mean I guess the the cool thing is uh, RubyConf. Although although I was going to advertise RubyConf because I'm on the committee and tell people to submit their proposals and I just realized that the CFP's closed like 3 yeah. days ago. <laughs> you so, advertise the, the conference itself, come I guess. To the conference it's going to be great and you should definitely come to the Beyond Ruby track where mm. you're going to hear great talks about nothing to do with Ruby. Uh mm-hmm. and there'll be some sort of some live demos and some interesting yeah interesting i don't want to say anything because we haven't actually finalized the talks yet but i've got a really interesting pool of talks to choose from for this track so i'm really excited um cool. and so yeah so rubyconf is november 15th and november 7th november 17th to 17th yeah in san antonio texas uh, it's going to be should be a lot of fun so and there's yeah so we've got the beyond ruby track got um avdi grim running um Uh, the fundamentals track so where you can come and it's a sort of i didn't understand x before this talk but now i do mm-hmm. and we've got james edward gray running the uh less code track so what cool things can we do with less code and keeping things simple mm-hmm. um and then we've got ernie miller running the wetware track which is your non-technical sort of you know the the brains behind the software and making us better developers and working with one another communication uh, all that kind of stuff so yeah it's going to be and then of course many other tracks many other talks in the general general track so hmm. it sounds like a, a good a good collection of track conductors will you will you be coming <laughs> um i will actually be in hong kong i believe so oh what a shame yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh i'm sure it'll be an awesome time Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. it well, good. Nadia, thanks very much for being on. I appreciate it. No, thanks so much, Ben. It's really, it's been really great talking to you. Awesome. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm/163. Thanks for listening.